Hi there and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Kapelos in Ottawa. Tonight, does Ottawa need to tackle a rise in crime? We see the Toronto Police, we see every single Premier. The Conservatives are asking for bail reform and the Liberals have done nothing about it. The Tories joined Canada's premiers to reform the bail system, asking, rather, for a reformation of the bail system. MPs are here to debate that in moments. Then, premiers are, of course, set to meet with the prime minister. Just days from now, Ontario announces its full health care plan, but presses the feds to come to the table with more money. The province's deputy premier will be here to talk about that coming up. Plus, Blanchette doubles down. This is a bad choice by the prime minister. The Bloc leader wants to eliminate the special representative on combating Islamophobia. The position of that, the latest details on that are ahead live. First, though. Started advocating on the inadequacy of our bail laws uh, in, in the mid-2005 when I was in provincial politics because I felt then, as is evidenced now by real examples given by the police chief and others, about people getting out on bail over and over and over again, like the same person getting out over and over again and then being charged with the same thing, which is illegally carrying weapons and, and in some cases then doing things that we later would deeply live to regret. Toronto's Mayor John Tory there calling for a closer look at the bail system in response to a rash of violent crime in his city and in other places in this country. It's dominated headlines really in recent weeks. Today, it's also front and centre in the House of Commons. The Tories introduced a motion calling for a reversal to the Liberals' bail reforms, what was known as Bill C-75, which was passed back in 2019. This is all happening in light of last December's fatal shooting of an Ontario police officer by a man who was out on bail and who also had a lifetime ban from owning a firearm. Premiers are also calling for the feds to reform the bail system. All 13 of them signed a letter to the prime minister last month urging the feds to take immediate action to strengthen Canada's bail system to, quote, better protect first responders. So does Canada's bail system need an overhaul? And if so, what should it look like? Let's take that to our panel of MPs. With me tonight, Liberal MP for Vancouver Granville, Granville rather, Talib Mohammed, and Conservative public safety critic Raquel Dancho. Hi there. Good to see you both. Thank you for you. coming in. I, I normally start with the government, but in this case, it's your motion that you're introducing. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, primarily, what is the, the reason that you want this to happen? And what specifically are you looking for the government to do? So there's two reasons that we chose to do this opposition day, motion today on bail reform and crime. Uh, number one is that Canadians are growing inc increasingly concerned about seeing these uh, violent crime headlines every day. They're seeing it on the TTC in Toronto. They're seeing it in their communities. I think they deserve to see a change. The second reason is that we've failed to see any leadership on this issue from the federal government. And we do believe they have a very strong role to play in this, in particular with bail reform. Uh, they did reform bail with their C-75 a few years, of, uh, years ago. And what happened was violent repeat offenders had better access to getting bail. So they were back in our communities wreaking havoc on our streets. And that's contributed to the rising crime that we're seeing. And it is real. It's 32% increase in violent crime in the last eight years, 92% uh, increase in gang murders. So it's not just headlines, it is in the stats and it is very concerning. We're hearing it from police. You mentioned at the onset, the premiers, big city mayors, also nearly every police officer that I talk to, we hear this from the Toronto police, they're calling 
for bail reform, and we haven't seen leadership being taken on that from the Liberal government. So today we chose them to hold them accountable for that and demand action on this on behalf of Canadians. Okay, I want to dig a little deeper in a second into the statistics that you're presenting, but but let me first take your, your proposition over to your colleague, Mr. Nur Mohammed. Um, do, do you agree that there needs to be some reform with bail, the bail system as it stands? Absolutely. You know, I think we have been consistent in saying that where there is room for improvement, we should. And so the work has already been done. Ministers Lametti and Mendicino have already begun uh, conversations with their provincial and territorial counterparts. There's going to be a meeting eminently of those uh, provincial and territorial ministers to get into this issue and to make sure that we come up with meaningful comprehensive responses ranging from a legislative response to making sure that we are working with, with provinces to support them. We have to remember that many of these decisions on bail are made at the provincial level, provincial court judges in provincial courts. And so our job is to make sure that there's good public policy behind them, but that we have a comprehensive national strategy with provinces and territories at the table as active partners in getting to those solutions. I'll just follow up on that before I go back to Ms. Danco, Dancho, rather. And, and, and that is around the, the role of the provinces, because uh, my understanding is from, from the reading that I've done that like a province like British Columbia, for example, decided to go a little bit stronger on the bail conditions in response to the effect Bill C-75 had. So while I understand the intent behind it, which was essentially to um, address some of the uh, disproportionate minorities that were in jail, but also the overcrowding of jails, we did hear, for example, from uh, things like the city of Kelowna, who talked about, you know, an influx of people on the streets and the, the detrimental effect that was having on crime levels. And so, do you admit, do you concede that Bill C-75, though its intent was one thing, did not work out the way that it should have? Well, there are provisions of Bill C-75 that were in direct response to Supreme Court decisions, right? Decisions that, that decisions that were made that said, look, we needed to do things differently. And there are elements of Bill C-75 that have worked extremely well, and there there is room for improvement. And if you look at what British Columbia is doing and the work that Attorney General Nikki Sharma and Premier Eby have been doing, uh, there is a lot of, there is certainly room for improvement, but I think there's also an important consideration for how do you not try to use this as a political cudgel, Right. Bill C-75 already says if you have a violation of, if you have a firearms violation, if you're a violent offender, you should not be getting bail. And those guidelines are clear. And so it's, you know, I, I would say my colleague should be relieved to know that what she's actually asking for is already very much in Bill C-75. But what we need to do is to now look at how do we supplement that with all of the other things that help people prevent crime in the first place. So, so Ms. okay, that sounds to me, though, that you're not really open to, to repealing some parts of C-75. I'll get to you in a second, Ms. Dantra. I just want to get you to weigh in. If, in fact, the, the, the stuff that you want to happen already exists, then is it, is it even necessary to change the law as it exists? And, and maybe are there other supplementary things that could be done? Well, in the bill C-75, it's right in the bill. It makes it easier to get bail. That should be the default uh, for, for the courts, for police, the least onerous conditions. It says it right in there, Minister Menachino. principle of restraint. Uh, correct. Uh, Minister Mendicino was uh, on the record talking about this uh, when that bill was up for debate. So that's what the legislation says, and that's what's been done, the least onerous conditions. But do you also understand the motivation behind it? Well, I think when it comes to violent repeat offenders, when we're talking about rapists, murderers, people who rob others at gunpoint, I don't think anyone believes that those individuals with wrong, long rap shades should be let out on bail weekend after weekend. But they weekend. aren't really being, right? Like the most onerous crimes are treated in a certain way, even uh, under that well, bill. Well, the individual that you mentioned at the beginning, the murderer, who murdered that police officer was out on bail, has a long rap sheet of violent crime, had a weapons prohibition order, and yet he was out on bail, get, got access to a firearm, and then shot and murdered that police officer. In Vancouver, we have 40 individuals responsible for 6,000 arrests in a single year. 
that's each individual being arrested 150 times in a single year. Is so, there a solution, though, through the province, like the new uh, rules, basically, that the, the premier brought in when he was just like the, the in B.C., they, they did try to, to taper that, to tamper that with their own set of, with, with their own directive. Is, is it possible that provinces tackle this? We do feel that and see that provinces are trying to fill the gaps that the federal government has created with Bill C-75 and a whole host of other soft on crime policies that they've brought forward in the past eight years. We're seeing police and provinces demanding and asking uh, repeatedly to the federal government to do something about this and to bring forward bail reform in response to what's happened since Bill C-75. So we have a collective group of people from all different political parties, all different partisan stripes, asking the federal government to take action. And yet they fail to take leadership. In fact, today, all they said was that they're going to call a meeting with their provincial counterparts. No one is asking for a meeting, Bashi. We're asking for action. And yet they fail to show any leadership on that on behalf of Canadians. And it's very disappointing. Mr. Nor Mohammed, final question to you. And it kind of jumps off there. I, I heard you kind of echo what Minister Lametti said today around the accusation that conservatives are using this for, for political gain. Are you accusing the premiers of doing the same? Because they're also asking for reform. I think what the premiers are asking for is a plan to work together. And that is exactly well, what they're going to do. Well, they're asking specifically for reforms. They're well. asking for reform. And if you, if you look at what they are asking for... This requires a conversation because what BC is asking for may not be exactly what Ontario is asking for. And so to come up with a comprehensive plan together requires everybody to get into the same room and actually come up with real solutions. Saying, But we're they're not repeal. playing politics. Is that what you're... Because you're saying the Conservatives are. But, say, but are you saying everyone who asks for bail no, reform... No, I'm saying that if there is a willingness to have a meaningful conversation, that's one thing. Saying repeal the legislation because you're soft on crime is actually quite the opposite. And if there is an opportunity to, to improve, and if Ms. Dancho has good suggestions, I know that Minister Mendocino and Minister Lamenti would be open to those things. But the idea of saying that you know, everything is everything is a mess, everything is broken, certainly does not actually get to the heart of the problem, which is we need to be dealing with at its core. How do you prevent crime? How do you make sure there's supports for mental health and addictions? How do you support making sure judges have the tools to make the decisions? And most importantly, how do you ensure that police are well-resourced to ensure that people who are on bail make uh, not only meet their bail conditions, but if they do something wrong, that they are able to be arrested? I know that you want to jump in. I'm out of time, unfortunately. I'm sure this will, will remain a discussion, though, for uh, months to come. I appreciate you both making the time tonight to leave Norm Mohammed and Raquel Dancho. We're going to dig into this subject with our front bench premiers panel later this hour. Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark, and Daryl Dexter will be here. First, though, a day after sitting down with Canada's special representative on combating Islamophobia, Yves-Francois Blanchette is rejecting the apology she made and continuing his calls for her removal. There's been uh, fingers pointed at Quebec and at uh, Bill 21, and there's been uh, association of uh, between the Bill 21 and Islamophobia, all of these things put together, whatever her personal qualities might be, disqualify her for the function. This is a bad choice by the Prime Minister who, making such a choice, uh, kind of uh, destroyed the possible credibility of, of the function. Amira El-Gawabi apologized yesterday for past comments criticizing Quebec's controversial secularism law. It's known as Bill 21. But as you heard there, the bloc leader is digging in, slamming her appointment and even saying the position of special representative combating Islamophobia should be scrapped. CTV's Judy Trin has been following all these developments. She joins us now. Hi, Judy. Uh, let's start with Hi, that you. meeting, if you don't mind, yesterday. Uh, outline for us the significance of it. Well... 
it was an hour-long meeting, and before Amira El-Gawabi went into that meeting, she already apologized. The comments that she was apologizing for was from a 2019 editorial that she wrote for Post Media. It was a joint uh, editorial in which she criticized, uh, she said that, and I want to I quote exactly what she said. The majority of Quebecers appear to be swayed not by the rule of law, but by anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, this was in regards to polling data from Leger, which said that those who supported a ban on public school teachers wearing religious symbols such as the hijab, uh, their uh, leger showed that they had a negative view of Islam. She never used the word uh, racist, but yet that is how uh, her words were interpreted uh, by Quebec politicians. And she started uh, getting a lot of pressure from Quebec uh, provincial and uh, federal politicians, including in the, uh, the National Assembly, in which overwhelmingly, almost every single member of that National Assembly called for her removal, called for the Prime Minister to remove her from her position. Take a listen. She said that despite what happened, uh, she had a good meeting with uh, Blanchet, that, uh, but they agreed to disagree on Bill 21. And I would like to say that I am extremely sorry for the way that my words have carried, how they have hurt the people of Quebec. So, so we exchanged our opinions about Bill 21, and we, of course, agree to disagree about Bill 21. But that's what dialogue is all about. So, Vashi, you know that uh, Bill 21 is currently at uh, the Quebec Court of Appeal. Uh, the, uh, the three panel judge, judges are currently deciding whether or not it is constitutional, whether or not it uh, restricts and violates religious freedoms. So we are waiting for that decision. And this is happening within the context of that. And, and I know that there is some back and forth on uh, the Hill today around this. Lots of people being asked for their sentiments uh, uh, about what has transpired, and in particular what Mr. Blanchette doubled down on today. What are you hearing there? Well, Vashi, uh, we are hearing that uh, there is, uh, especially coming from the NDP, uh, Alexander Boris is basically saying that uh, it is a deplorable deplorable, and it shows the true stripes of the Bloc Quebecois, the fact that they are actually calling not just for the uh, for uh, Amira El-Gwabi to uh, step down, but also for the, uh, for the position to be scrapped. Take a listen. Today, the Bloc Quebecois with Mr. Blanchet and Mr. Terrien, they crossed a line because they don't just ask for the resignation of Madame El-Gwabi, but they ask for the abolition of the position itself. And uh, this is something completely new, and I think it shows the true face of the Bloc Québécois. They don't want anybody to look at what is happening to the Muslim community in Montreal and in Quebec. And we all... Bashi, this, this is happening, you know, just a few days after uh, we marked uh, the January 29th uh, uh, mosque uh, killings uh, in Quebec City. This is also happening, you know, this position was a a demand by the Muslim community in light of what happened in 2021 when a family of, uh, uh, of Muslims were mowed down and killed by a man police said had hatred and was anti-Islamic.
Okay, thanks, Judy. CTV's Judy Trin for us on that developing story. The government's controversial online streaming legislation, meanwhile, known as Bill C-11, could pass the Senate today. The Senate has studied this bill longer than any other in its history and added more than two dozen amendments. I interviewed the minister in charge of the bill, Pablo Rodriguez, at a Canadian Media Producers Association conference this afternoon, and he said the bill could become law as soon as next week. Here's what he said when I asked him if he would accept all the Senate's changes. There are things that cannot change or will not change that I will not accept. This bill is there to support our Canadian culture, our creators, our film producers, our, our, our directors, our actors, um, and, you know, our musicians. It's there for that. If an amendment comes and changes that, then it's no. The bill has faced fierce criticism from opposition Tories who argue it will limit free speech and from content creators online who worry it will force platforms to prioritize Canadian content over what's popular with users. So am I to interpret from that that you could direct the CRTC to make it more stringent for, for foreign I could foreign direct actors? the CRTC in many things in many ways. Okay, and we'll continue tracking any developments on that bill. Coming up, though, Ontario's government unveiled a full health care plan today. We'll speak to Health Minister Sylvia Jones next. Welcome back to Power Play on this Thursday evening. Ontario's government has unveiled its full health care plan now. It includes $30 million to create up to 18 new primary care teams and a reiteration, really, of the province's attempt, at, intent rather, to use private clinics to clear a massive surgical backlog. The premiers are all set to meet the prime minister Tuesday to talk about a long-term health care deal. I spoke to Ontario's health minister and deputy premier Sylvia Jones about that earlier today. Hi, Minister. Good to have you back on the program. Nice to be here. Thank you, Bashi. I know you reached, uh, you released rather many additional details of your health plan today. I, I wanted to start off by asking about it in the context of the big meeting that's happening here in Ottawa next week, and in particular, what Ontario is looking for from Ottawa. I spoke with BC's Premier, uh, David Eby, this week, who, who indicated to me that the money the federal government brings to the table is not necessarily a red line for him or BC. I is your position similar? Well, I'm going to let uh, Premier Ford do the uh, leadership at uh, the conference uh, next week. But I can tell you that, you know, a message that has been, been resonating with Austin, Ontario is since 2018, we have invested $14 billion additionally in our healthcare spending. So we're there. We just want a willing partner. Right now, as you know, federal government gives 22%, and we would like to see that increase to 35 it's nowhere near the 50-50 partnership that many Canadians believe is currently in place. 22% is what the federal government is currently providing Ontario residents. When you look at increasing that share, uh, are you looking specifically to the, the escalator for the Canada health transfer? And, and if I could ask you bluntly, would you like to see that escalator increase? Well, I think it's important that we don't have a situation where we have an immediate um, in, 
flux of money and then we end up um, bleeding back again. So absolutely, right now, 22%, we need to make sure that the investments are ongoing because once we make those commitments to hire new primary care physicians, to hire new nurses, uh, to build new medical schools and hospitals, we want a partner who's going to be there, not for the short term, but for the long term as we have committed. I know that you uh, referenced number, I think it was $14 billion. uh, And I think you said since 2018. Uh, I'm going to put to you some other statistics that I gathered from the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario, where they indicated in the last year they were able to calculate uh, for 2020-2021 that Ontario actually had the lowest health spending per capita in the entire country. Is it fair for you to expect the federal government to invest more when you spend less per capita than any other province? Well, what is what we are doing in Ontario? Again, I will say $14 billion since 2018 has been added to the Ontario health budget. And that, I must say, is outside of COVID spending. So we're making the investments. We just want a willing partner and a federal partner who's willing to be there and help us with those investments. Now, brand new medical schools, two of them in the greater Toronto area, um, expansions in residency positions for new physicians who want to practice in Ontario, uh, 50 different capital builds for new renovated or expanded hospitals across Ontario. Again, I will say we are making the investments. We just want a partner to be there with us. But when you say you're making the investments, perhaps relative to investments that you had made prior, however, relative to the rest of Canada, it's still lower. I think on average, it's 10% lower per capita, the health spending in Ontario than other provinces. Are you prepared if the fiscal situation, for example, is worse in the next few years to continue investing and increase, actually, rather, the level of investment in health? Well, as the Premier has always said, we will always be there to invest in health. We know that we have an aging population, an increasing population in Ontario, which is why we're making those investments now, so that for generations to come, we have the infrastructure, the healthcare uh, professionals, the clinicians able to serve that um, aging and expanded population. So yes, absolutely, we will continue to invest in Ontario's healthcare system. But will you increase it if your revenues decrease, is my question, because in the past, your government has made decisions to invest less in other areas because revenue had decreased and and you were worried about the fiscal situation. Is that something that your government would do again or will you avoid that because of the crisis the healthcare system faces? So again, I will say our history has shown that the investments are there. 14 billion since 2018 added to our healthcare budget, and we will continue to make those investments. We've made those commitments to our hospital partners, to our colleges and universities, expanding positions and available spaces for people to train and ultimately work in Ontario. And I do, Minister, take your point on the whole number. My challenge to you was just around when you divide that by the number of people in Ontario, the number isn't quite as big as you're presenting it. I do want to move on, though, to uh, the fact that Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, is specifically singling out Ontario. And the last time we spoke, actually, the the announcement that you had made around increasing the number of privately delivered uh, procedures in order to clear the surgical backlog. He says that the federal government should hold back money from a province like Ontario for expanding the private sector's role in health care. Have you had any uh, insinuation or, or warning from the federal government that that is even on the table? 
None whatsoever. And in fact, Prime Minister Trudeau has said that he embraces innovation and is looking forward to seeing how Ontario is doing it. But I want to reinforce, you know, this is not unique to Ontario. We have community surgical centers and diagnostic centers in British Columbia, in Saskatchewan, in Alberta. So for uh, Jagmeet Singh to suggest that in some way there should be a clawback for uh, territories and provinces that do it, I, I would respectfully say that he needs to understand the current system better. And certainly when I've interviewed him, I have pointed out that, that other provinces uh, do endeavor to do the same thing, and, and, and you're not wrong there. His contention is, well, other provinces like, let's say, B.C., which do it, are backing away from it, while Ontario is expanding the role of the private sector right now. And his concern, as he's outlined it to me and, and here on Parliament Hill, is that sta- you know already the, the province faces a staffing shortage in the public system. And this you know, boost to the private system will lure those, those few staff away from the public system uh, towards the private system, and the public system will be sort of at a loss. How do you respond to that? Well, in fact, I would point to the fact that our uh, cataract expansion announcement in Ottawa, in Kitchener-Waterloo, and in Windsor were all within existing infrastructure and using existing health human resources. So again, we've looked at where capacity is available, where wait times are frankly too long, and said, if you can do more, if you can do uh, additional procedures, uh, cataract surgeries, then we want to empower you to do that, which is exactly what we did in those three communities that have people waiting too long for cataract surgeries. But that's not just what you intend to do, right? There's knee, there's hip, there's other procedures. And and the idea that, that staff will go towards those clinics where they can make more, like what are you going to do to prevent that from happening? What we are doing is through the process of applications, we are asking how and where are your health human resources coming from. We understand that there will be applications from not-for-profit, from hospitals, um, and from for-profit. So the combination will be, as part of the application, show us how you can appropriately uh, ensure that when we give you a license, you are going to be able to serve the community faster. because. At the end of the day, this is all about people are waiting too long for surgeries that are impacting their quality of life, their ability to engage in community, in work life, in, in, with their family. We need to decrease the wait list. And, and, and no disagreement for me or the people watching on, on the wait list aspect of that. But if, for example, you get an application that says, well, everyone who's, who's going to come work here used to work in a hospital, like, are you going to deny them the license we- to do that? So part of the application process will be an assessment and a review of where the HHR is coming from. But I want to reinforce, you know, this is this is one piece of a puzzle that we have also expanded uh, the ability for nurses or individuals who want to train as nurses, a learn and stay program where the Ontario government is paying for tuition and books so that those individuals can practice within their communities. But that still doesn't tell me black and white that if a private private clinic decides to pilfer all the um, uh, you know nurses from a, a public hospital that they won't be given a license under your government sure you'll examine it but you're not drawing any hard lines right so there will be some legislation coming forward that will clarify and and further explain how the application process will in happen but again i will say capacity is happening within our hospital system thank you very much for your time minister
Stay well. You too. Ontario's Deputy Premier there, Sylvia Jones. I want to turn back now to one of our top stories here in Ottawa, and that is the Bloc Québécois leader, Yves-François Blanchet, calling for the removal of uh, Almira El-Ghabi from the government's newly created position of a special representative to combat Islamophobia. And, and not only that, actually, but the uh, sort of elimination of that position altogether. I want to bring in my next guest from the House of Commons, actually, who just emerged from a meeting, uh, the minister in charge of diversity and inclusion, Ahmed Hussein. Minister Hussein, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you making the time. Thank you for having me. Uh, we watched yesterday as Ms. El-Gawabi met with Mr. Blanchet and uh, made a very public apology for the comments that, that she made in the past surrounding Bill 21. Were you surprised today that Mr. Blanchet doubled down and not only called for her to be removed from that position, but for the position itself to be eliminated? Well, look, I, I mean, our government's position is clear. We disagree with uh, Monsieur Blanchet. This position, uh, I just want to remind uh, viewers that this position was created as a direct response to the uh, calls uh, made by national uh, Muslim Canadian leaders during the National Summit Against Islamophobia for our government to create this position so that we would have a dedicated person who would advise the government, act as an expert and a champion and an advisor uh, to tackle rising uh, Islamophobia against Muslim Canadians. This is a really important step in the, in the, in the overall fight against hate and discrimination. And we believe that uh, uh, Ms. El-Gawabi is eminently qualified for this role. And so is your response to Mr. Blanchet's call uh, not to do so? Like, uh, what would you, He's asking for you to uh, remove her from that position. Your answer to that? Well, uh, of course not. I, we believe that this position, again, is a direct response to the calls uh, for action against Islamophobia by national Muslim Canadian leaders during the national summit uh, to fight Islamophobia. And we made a commitment to Muslim Canadians that uh, we would create this position. And we believe that this position and the work of uh, Ms. El-Gawabi is another important step in our government's overall efforts to, uh, to fight Islamophobia, to fight all forms of hate, and to, uh, to, to protect communities so that they not only are safe, but also feel safe and included in Canada. Uh, and you saw Ms. El-Gawabi meet with uh, Monsieur Blanchet to, to engage in difficult conversations that are necessary to really bring people along so that we, we can focus our efforts in, in fighting against hate and discrimination in this country. Do you think she should have apologized as she did yesterday? Well, look, I mean, I will, uh, the special representative has clarified her previous comments. She has apologized for her past comments that uh, may have hurt uh, a number of people. But the fact of the matter is Ms. El-Gawabi brings over two decades of experience uh, working in civil liberties, working within the Muslim Canadian community. Uh, she's overly qualified for a, a really important role that our government believes is, is yet another step in the important fight against hate and discrimination in this country. I was, uh, you know, in Quebec City on Sunday, uh, and I saw with my own eyes Quebecers and Canadians from all parts of Canada uh, stand together in solidarity with Muslim Canadians to mark the sixth anniversary of the Quebec City mosque shooting. And, and, I, and this position is building on the strong foundation of leadership that Quebecers and Canadians have shown 
in their efforts to stand with Muslim Canadians against Islamophobia and, and against all forms of hate and discrimination. And we believe that this position, and particularly Ms. El-Gawabi's appointment, is a step in the right direction uh, in the ongoing fight against hate and discrimination in this country. What does it say to you, Minister Houston, that Mr. Blanchet wants the position eliminated? Well, I, I mean, I was very hopeful that uh, Ms. El-Gawabi, uh, after meeting with Ms. Mr. Blanchet, uh, he had asked for the meeting. We were very uh, happy that they met. It shows that Ms. El-Gawabi is willing and able to engage in the difficult conversations that are necessary to really learn about each other's perspectives and to listen to each other. But at the end of the day, we have a commitment that we've made to Muslim Canadians and we've made to other Canadians to, as a government to prioritize the, the fight against hate and discrimination. And uh, I don't think the elimination of this position will serve that purpose. And, and so we respectfully disagree with Monsieur Blanchet. But the fact of the matter is Ms. El-Gawabi is already showing leadership by engaging in others, engaging in difficult conversations. And I believe her appointment is a step in the right direction and keeping a commitment that the government made uh, to Muslim Canadians uh, in response to rising levels of hate and Islamophobia directed uh, to Muslim Canadians. We saw the Quebec City mosque shooting. We saw what happened uh, with, the, with the murder of the members of the Afsal family in London and many other incidents that uh, have come to the surface. And so we need to tackle Islamophobia. We need to tackle discrimination and right. hate in all its forms. And we want to make sure that all Canadians are not only safe, but, I, I but feel that. safe and, I, uh, and included in their communities. Yeah. Yeah. And I apologize for interrupting, but I'm being told your time is very limited. So I just want to make sure I ascertain for Canadians yeah. watching, and I'm not trying to take away from, from your points there about the, the, the sure. rise in Islamophobia and the, the need to, to, to combat it. But you know that the, the, the piece that many Quebecers have gleaned onto uh, is around part of what she wrote in an opinion column in reference to a poll where Ms. al said the majority of Quebecers appear to be swayed not by the rule of law, but by anti-Muslim sentiment. Were you and your government aware of that? Were you aware of the comments she had made around Bill 21 before making this appointment? Well, the candidates, all the candidates that applied to become the special representative were subjected to uh, and participated in a fair and open and transparent vetting process uh, where uh, they, were, they were able to, uh, to compete for this position, this really important position. Uh, look, Ms. El-Gawabi's position is an independent position. She has clarified her comments. She has apologized for some of the impact but that did your her, government her past know about comments have had uh, on Quebecers. We are moving forward to make sure that we work with Ms. El-Gawabi to make sure that we continue the fight against Islamophobia and all forms of hate and discrimination in Canada. And that is where our focus is. And by Ms. El-Gawabi sitting down with Monsieur Balanchet, meeting with other representatives of different communities, She's already showing leadership that she's willing and able to engage in the difficult conversations that are necessary and that I don't usually surround yeah, Minister, I don't topics. disagree at all. She's highly qualified. Yeah. I, I completely understand where you're coming from them. I've interviewed right. her there. I've interviewed yeah. her a number of times, but you didn't answer whether or yes. not. You said there was a competition, but were you aware of the comments? There was a competition. And I asked because those there, are the there ones. Was a, yeah, there was a competition. We know uh, that uh, Ms. El-Gawabi has clarified those comments. She has apologized for the impact that those comments may have had uh, on, on a number of people. Uh, the fact of the matter is our, our government's position is clear. We recognize the prioritization of the fight against all forms of hate and discrimination, and we cannot let up in that fight. 
And we believe that this position, and particularly the appointment of Ms. El-Gawabi, is another really important positive step in the fight against Islamophobia and hate and discrimination in our communities. Okay. Okay, I, I appreciate your time so much this evening, Mr. Minister Houston. Sorry for keeping you a little extra long there. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Minister Thank Ahmed Houston. We're going to take a quick break this evening on Power Play. On the other end of that break, the front bench will be here. Stay right there. Welcome back to Power Play. As we've been discussing tonight, all of Canada's premiers are urging Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to take some immediate action and reform Canada's bail system. How likely is that to happen and what might necessitate some changes? Let's bring in our front bench panel of former premiers to talk about that. Joining me this evening, former British Columbia Premier Christy Clark, former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, and former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter. Hi, everybody. Good to see you. I appreciate you making the time. Um, uh, Christy, I wanted to start with you. And just on the, I mean, I feel like for many people across this country right now, uh, crime has edged up in the last number of months. It's something we are talking about, our own safety, like just with the, especially with the amount of random attacks. Uh, I definitely feel like it's top of mind for a lot of Canadians. How worried would you be if you were leading a, pro you know, a province like BC or Ontario, where we've seen a lot in Toronto lately, uh, about what's happening and, and do you understand the call for bail reform? Oh, absolutely. I mean, okay, so the Vancouver numbers, about on average four people a day are victims of attacks by strangers. So there's no, you know, nothing they've done is just random. And I don't think you can, you know, run a country where people feel safe if that's what we know is happening out there. This is a product of years and years of courts making decisions where they're trying to do the right thing, but where there's very little connection to the way things actually work on the ground. So you see Crown prosecutors so overwhelmed and busy. You see them trying to meet timelines that have been set by the court, which turn out to be impossible. You see a court system that isn't keeping track of how many times someone's been back and what, you know, back and forth to the courts. And so they don't even have any real records sometimes on the people that they are letting back out on the streets. So if the NDP in British Columbia is calling for bail reform and they were last year amongst the first in the country, then you know it's a very serious issue for people. Yeah, it seems, especially where the premiers are concerned, Daryl, to really cross party lines. Um, certainly all, all 13 of them, right, signed this letter to the prime minister. How complicated do you think that kind of reform will be? Or do you think it's something the feds could do fairly soon? Well, I think, first of all, Canadians have a right to feel safe in their own community. They shouldn't have to worry about uh, violence, you know, particularly as Christy has mentioned, those kind of random acts which seem to be on the rise for no apparent reason. Um, this is something that uh, obviously falls directly in the in the, the lap of the federal government, and it's. I think that the 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 issue that they need to address very squarely is uh, the one that I think was underlined by the chiefs of police, which is that that group of repeat. I think they call them repeat and prolific um, uh, violent offenders. Uh, I think um, that is something that the government could address. And of course, there are other pieces that I think uh, Christy was already alluding to, which include things like, you know, post-release uh, supervision um, and the proper funding for those kinds of uh, services, which are every bit as important as the legislation itself. 
Uh, Kathleen, a, a lot of this seems to come up against, not against, but, but you know, in, in opposition to some of the stuff that happened with Bill C-75, right? So the intent there was to help clear, you know, crowded prisons and also uh, help with the disproportionate number of minorities who, who are in those prisons. But what ended up happening, it seems, is, uh, you know, something to the detriment of, of society more largely. And I'm wondering how complicated you think that makes it for the government. Well, I think it's a really complicated process, Ashley. I mean, um, everything that Christy and uh, and Daryl has said is part of the the issue. But I think that the precipitating incident um, incidents have been very recent, and I think we have to be careful as a as a country that we don't just react to really hard cases. You know, that there be um, a good examination of what works and what doesn't work. Um, so. I think that there are things that have been tried, and, and Christy would know more about this than me, but um, some of the programs that have been piloted in, um, in BC where uh, some of those prolific offenders that Daryl's talking about have actually not just been put in jail, but actually have treatment and social service support around them. And there seems to be um, uh, uh, some success in terms of uh, lack of recidivism. Um, I don't think there's a, a simple solution. You know, I think that um, things like, I think some of the premiers are saying we should have judges rather than justices of the peace, for example, in Ontario, um, make these decisions. Well, there was a pilot done in Ontario. We need to see the evidence from that. You know, we need to see if that actually, if that actually worked. It, it was started under our government and we haven't heard from uh, the current government whether it worked or not. So I totally understand why the premiers are calling for some change. The, uh, the bill, as you said, went, uh, you know, it went in one direction and there's always, a, there's always a course correction that has to happen. And that should be happening in consultation uh, with the federal government, with the province's um, justice ministers and with the premiers. It's interesting because a lot of what you said, uh, Kathleen, reminded me of a, a lot of the debate in the United States, right, where some of the statistics don't necessarily bear out over a, a longer period of time the feeling that we have. But, I, but I'm wondering, Christy, from your perspective, if as politicians you're kind of, you know, you're, you're confronted with the reality that you have to deal with that feeling regardless, right? Like that you can, you can still operate, of course, within, within the realm of facts. But if people are worried about what really seems like a higher incidence of strangers being attacked or what happened to the OPP officer, uh, you know, you know what I mean? Like if the, if the senses I feel less safe, you, you, you kind of got to figure out a way to deal with it. Yes, you do. Because we know that if people feel less safe, I mean, this is not anecdotal evidence. This is you know, based on multiple studies, if people feel less safe in their communities, the communities actually get less safe. Mm -hmm. We also know, though, I, you know, the trend is obvious. This is not, uh, you know, gee, just some blip. Our streets are less safe. You look at anti-Asian attacks that are happening all across the country. You look at, what, as I talked about, the attacks on the strain from strangers, four people a day on average in Vancouver. I mean, it's getting worse. And the system that we've set up to deal with it is not making it uh, easier. What we've ended up with is kind of a catch and release process. And I think most people would say, look, I don't, it's not as, it's, it's terrible that people who are vulnerable or from difficult circumstances um, are more likely to find their ways into the jail system. But the way to deal with that is to not make people less safe by putting that you know, small percentage of them who are extremely dangerous back out on the street because we haven't figured out what to do with them. 
But, but Fashi, I mean, the yeah, only, ahead, you know, yeah. the, the thing that's worse in terms of the, pol the politics of this is if, a, if we make changes that then don't work. So the point I'm right. making is that we have to make sure that there's some evidence for the, for the changes that we as a country suggest, you know, because if people feel unsafe and then government says, well, we're going to do this change and that's motivated by politics because you have to be seen to be doing something. And then if people still don't feel safe, then that's worse because that then undermines people's faith in the ability of government to do anything. And, you know, the right to bail uh, is a, is a, it's a charter protected right. And so, and we're, you know, we're, we're, our system is based in an assumption of innocence until proven guilty. So we have to, we have to recognize those parameters and then look at the evidence and do the things that are going to work. Because the last thing we need to do is undermine yeah. people's faith in government's ability to actually make a change that's going to be in fact better. I think I think part of what's being suggested is, for example, a reverse onus on certain uh, types of offenders. But but like you said, um, you know, we'll have to wait. To but see that what the evidence exists, is in, in, right? That for, in certain exists. yes, in certain instances. And yes. so maybe yes, maybe okay. it needs to be redefined. <laughs> I get it. I get it for sure. And I appreciate that. I think Mr. Dexter, I think Daryl froze for a second. So I'm going to actually switch gears, if you don't mind, with with uh, Christy and Kathleen, because we have a few minutes left. And I did want to get into a little bit of a political discussion because there's some new polling out that's quite interesting. Uh, I want to bring it up on the screen. I believe we have it. Abacus polling uh, that shows the conservatives with a with a wider lead than prior uh, eight point lead ahead of the liberals and the chair and CEO of that polling firm, David Coletto, says that the numbers show the liberals are losing the empathy game and that they need to focus on pocketbook issues and the health care crisis. And then we've also got new nanos polling uh, that shows the conservatives have a three point lead over the liberals. Last week, it was a little bit wider. Uh, Christy, what would you read into those numbers if you were, you know, uh, walking the hallways of federal parties right now? I wouldn't make a lot of the top line numbers, Vashi. I mean, I went into an election 20 points behind and I won the election. So, and, and that, you know, not that far before. So I, I don't take, make a lot, but I do think there's something to see underneath that. And what we see is that we see Justin Trudeau's personal numbers. He's dragging his party down. We see um, the NDP are starting to lose a lot of steam as well. And we see that, you know, Mr. Polyev is... His party is doing better, but he's still not very popular. So here's my prediction based on what we kind of see in those underlying numbers. I think we're going to see a very polarized election. I think you are going to see Justin Trudeau vilifying Pierre Polyev, and the opposite will be true. But I think that the Liberals are going to get a real bump out of the fact that the NDP are just nowhere. So it'll be a two-party election. And, I, you know, if... If Mr. Polyev hopes to win, he should hope that uh, Justin Trudeau waits to call it so that the election is more on economic issues and he has time to develop some optimism in the things that he talks about <laughs> rather than seeming so negative most of the time. And Trudeau should call it fast before the economy tanks. People start to feel, uh, start to recognize how badly he's managed the economy over the years. And, um, you know, it'll, it, they may not like Mr. Polyev at the end of the day, but I think they, if the economy's bad enough, people will certainly put their vote behind them. Poor, poor Daryl can't respond to the NDP because his connection timed out. So, Kathleen, I'll, I'll give you the, the last word. Uh, just on the, the question of uh, looking at those numbers and, and making a calculation about when to call an election, what, what would you be advising the prime minister to do? 
Well, I think, you know, I think the, the Liberals have a lot of work to do. And I think they have to uh, they have to demonstrate that um, that they're on the case. You know, there's the there's the governing. They are governing and they have a lot of issues in front of them. The health care accord is uh, really important. So those meetings and those bilateral agreements are going to be very, very important. Uh, as Christy said, the economy is uh, is critical. So I think they've got a lot of work to do. So if I were walking the, the halls, I'd be talking to the ministers and, you know, making sure they're they're on the case. But the party, the Liberal Party, um, I think you're going to see going after Polyev's brand. Um, I think that uh, the leader of the, the Conservatives has to demonstrate that he has the humanity to be the Prime Minister. I mean, Christy talked about it as negativity. I think it goes beyond negativity, but, uh, you know, he's got to demonstrate that he's got what it takes for people to actually vote for him because he's running behind his party as well. I think you're going to see, I'm not going to predict what when the election is going to be, but I think you're going to see um, the beginnings of a, of a heightened campaign in terms of maybe some ads will start to be run and we'll start to right. see the, uh, the debate taking shape. Daryl, your connection is, I think, back, but it's very shaky. And I just have 30 seconds left. A quick quite final question to you, if you hear me. Uh, if you were Justin Trudeau, would you call the election sooner rather than later? Oh, no, I think they need time uh, to uh, do some level setting uh, on a whole number of issues. The right track, wrong track numbers are uh, not good. Uh, the All the affordability numbers are really uh, in the tank. So they need to show that they're uh, addressing those. I think for the Conservatives, what uh, what they need to do, of course, is to never admit that they are in the lead. The best uh, frontrunner campaign is uh, to say that you're never. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, they uh, they need to do uh, uh, they need to do some work defining uh, their leadership. Uh, but uh, uh, I think uh, the, the majority of the work now is uh, with, with the government. Okay, I've got to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you very much, all three of you, for your time tonight. Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynn, and Daryl Dexter. We're back with today's takeaway in just a moment. There's been uh, fingers pointed at Quebec and at uh, Bill 21, and there's been uh, association of uh, between the Bill 21 and Islamophobia, all of these things put together, whatever her personal qualities might be, disqualify her for the function. This is a bad choice by the Prime Minister, who, making such a choice, uh, kind of uh, destroyed the possible credibility of, of the function. Bloc leader Yves-Francois Blanchet there calling for the removal of Amira El-Gawabi as the government's special representative to combat Islamophobia. I spoke to Minister Ahmed Hussein, who says that's not going to happen. Have a listen. Our, our government's position is clear. We recognize the prioritization of the fight against all forms of hate and discrimination, and we cannot let up in that fight. And we believe that this position, and particularly the appointment of Ms. El-Gawabi, is another really important positive step in the fight against Islamophobia and hate and discrimination. 
who's in there insisting that there would not be any removal of El Gawabi from that position or the elimination of the position altogether. I did also ask him if he and the government were aware of El Gawabi's comments around Bill 21 prior to the appointment. He did not directly answer. I'm going to hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. That does it for us tonight on Power Play. Have a great night.